Dear teacher, uh, if you're like me, October is the most difficult month of the year, and it was my plan to release this episode last month, but October happened. Just before we entered the month of November, I learned of a new acronym, just what education needs, right? It's Devilson. That's D-E-V-E-L-S-O-N. It stands for Dark Evil Vortex of Late September, October, and November. I don't know of a more fitting acronym for education for this time of year. To get a better idea of where I'm coming from, have you experienced anything on the following list during these dreaded fall months? Students showing up to class without work completed several days in a row. Email after email from parents about their student's grade. Having a transfer student enrolled in your class right as you're about to finish a unit of study, so now you have to create alternative assignments for this student while guiding everyone else toward a successful finish. The front office calls you to cover a colleague's class again. Three IEP meetings in two days. In the middle of a lesson, the front office calls to remind you that you need to take role. Parent-teacher conferences. An administrator visits your class after lunch on a Friday, the one time you didn't have your standard and objective on the board the past month, and then messaged you about it. And this is a long one. After only discussing it once in August and scheduling it for late October, you get a reminder from your PLC lead that everyone will be making impactful instructional decisions from the common assessment everyone decided to give. And guess what? You haven't given it yet. So you start the mad scramble to find out what lesson to put aside and how this out-of-the-blue assessment will impact the grade book. You give the assessment, review the data, and go to the PLC feeling proud and prepared, maybe even looking forward to it a little bit. But that has now been postponed because someone from the district office noticed that your site has not received the mandated reporter training, which is just someone from central office reading a very bullet-pointy slide deck to a room full of lethargic teachers. That PLC is put off indefinitely. Like I said, (sighs) if there is a season that makes me question whether or not I am going to stay in the classroom, it is this time of year. It was October of my seventh year of teaching when I came very close to the decision to leave the profession for good. Everything we are expected to do as teachers, which includes those expectations we place on ourselves, seem to collide into one six-week window, and for many, it becomes too much. I see many teachers online talking about self-care as a way to manage burnout. I think leaving work at work and making time for those things that make life worth living are essential in sustaining our energy for the job of teaching. But sometimes self-care doesn't seem like enough. At those times, we educators need to be asking ourselves, am I burnt out or demoralized? In this episode of Dear Teacher, Don't Give Up, I recorded a conversation with Dr. Doris A. Santoro. She is a philosopher of education and chair of the education department at Bowdoin College. She's a professor of education who conducts empirical research to study and theorize about the moral and ethical sources of teacher dissatisfaction 
and resistance. She wrote the book, Demoralized, Why Teachers Leave the Profession They Love and How They Can Stay. Reading this was a wake-up call. All educators should read this book. That includes administrators. For the past year, as I have interacted with educators on social media, I've seen periodic calls for teachers to exercise self-care to avoid burnout. And depending on the situation, especially one where a teacher is heaping unrealistic expectations on themselves, this is needed advice. But is self-care enough for those situations where teachers are being asked to give all of their time and energy to parts of the job that do not involve teaching or working directly with students? It's not. Keep listening to find out why. All right, today we're joined with Dr. Doris A. Santoro. Doris, how are you doing this morning? I'm very well, thanks. Well, thanks for coming on the show. I'm really excited because uh, your book, Demoralized, Why Teachers Leave the Job They Love and How They Can Stay, is a perfect fit for what I'm going for on this podcast. And it's coming at a time of year when I am at my most demoralized. And we'll get into why that is in a little bit. But before we do, would you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, your current role in education, and a little bit of background about your family and and things like that? Sure. So I am a professor of education and chair of the education department at Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine. It's a small liberal arts college on the coast of Maine. And I'm a philosopher of education who also is responsible for teacher ed at our college. And um, I study teacher dissatisfaction and especially the moral and ethical reasons for teacher dissatisfaction. And in Portland, Maine um, is where I live with my family. And that's my partner and my 10-year-old kiddo. All right. Philosophy of education. Sounds very interesting. Probably have lots of deep conversations about uh, the state of things in education, I imagine. I ask lots of questions. In fact, I just had to uh, reveal to the big survey course that as they were asking a lot of questions about the PISA data, I had to let them know that I was a philosopher and not a quant person. Mm -hmm. So... (laughs) So, but I, but I think for me, asking questions is the most exciting thing that is part of my job and asking fundamental questions about what we do as educators and in schools. Well, I got my bachelor's in philosophy, so I can definitely agree with that. The questions uh, do provoke a lot of thinking, a lot of great discussion. So I'm going to jump right in here to our, our next question is you wrote the book. I already mentioned the title, Demoralize Why Teachers Leave the Job They Love and How They Could Stay. Uh, but you did start your journey as a classroom teacher. So my question for you is what drew you out of the classroom toward higher ed, then eventually to examine K-12 education through an ethical lens? So um, I was drawn out of the classroom by a desire to have more education myself. I had been able to take a couple of graduate school classes uh, while I was working, and I realized probably will be no surprise after what I just said, that I had more questions that I wanted to explore. And so um, I considered I was an English teacher, um, high school English teacher, and I was trying to figure out, did I want to go um, for English ed, a master's in English, or something else? And I found uh, philosophy and education at Teachers College. And there, my advisor was David Hansen, who wrote The Call to Teach. And he really talks about how people enter teaching uh, because they have uh, this sort of moral sense of purpose that they bring to the work. 
And one of the things I often asked him was, well, couldn't people leave also because of the moral convictions they bring to the work? Mm -hmm. And in the kind of response that a good advisor offers, he said, well, that's a very interesting question that maybe you will be able to pursue one day. And so that was not the question that I ended up uh, pursuing for my dissertation, but I did end up um, taking that question on early in my career at Bowen. And that was because a dear colleague of mine, Lisa, ended up resigning. And she was a person who described herself as a lifer. Um, she used to tell kids in her classes in San Francisco, and that's where we worked together. Uh, she used to tell kids, you know, I can't wait to tell your children what you were doing when you were in my class. You know, that's she really intended to stay for the long haul. And, you know, when I read her resignation letter, I noticed that there was this idea of, I can't be the teacher I want to be anymore. And this wasn't because I'm not a good teacher mm -hmm. or I don't have anything left to give, but that I have a certain idea of what a good teacher should be. And I'm no longer living up to that. She was very effective um, and she had a lot of energy. I mean, I think she was very worn down by fighting endless skirmishes and battles. But I heard in her question mm -hmm. um, or in her resignation letter, something about the moral and ethical issues that bring people into teaching and how those could lead them to leave as well. And so that launched me on first a study of people who did leave the profession um, because of moral reasons. And I termed those people conscientious objectors to teaching, meaning they say, I will not do, you know, not on my back, I will not do what you're asking me to do in the name of teaching. Later, you know, I wanted to write a book um, and I also am a teacher educator and I'm sensitive to the problems that are that occur if we write only about teachers who leave. So I also wanted to write about teachers who stay and who face these kinds of dilemmas and how are they able to resolve them. And so that's what brought me to this book and this project. Wow. Um, yeah, when I came into education, it was in the throes of No Child Left Behind. And so the bigger word was achievement, mm -hmm. closing the achievement gap. And so we, mm -hmm. and this will come up, you know, in our interview, but that was the morality, eth ethical, the, those words weren't really being used about like why we're here and why we're doing what we're doing. It was all about achievement, achievement, achievement. So what you're saying resonates with me as far as just the, the moral sense of, I didn't. I think there were some people that would stand up and say in my first couple of years, like, this is a great profession. You're a great person for, for, for standing in here and, and, and teaching these kids. And it's a, it's a noble profession. And, and people would say, yeah, and they would, they, you could feel it and sense it. Like finally people are speaking my language when, but when we're just looking at data, most of the time, um, it was, it wasn't connecting with that sense of who we are and why we were there and why we'd gotten into education in the first place. So um, I really appreciate the work you did um, and looking into that. So, thank you. I do. I think that um, I think that No Child Left Behind moved us into a particularly amoral phase of teaching. Mm. That I think the tide may be shifting a little bit, but I do think that that took us into a place where it was 
a sense of we are looking only at the ends of education. We're only looking at the product and we care not at all about the means by which we're getting there. And um, that's sort of at the crux of what really um, troubles so many of the teachers that I've uh, interviewed. Right. So let's dive in a little bit to the work that you were uh, doing through the book. And the book Demoralized was looking at the problem of teacher attrition, namely those with five or more years of experience. And because I know a lot of talk in the recent years has been about how quickly people leave the profession. So they're there for five years or fewer, and then they leave. But you looked more at like, all right, for those who stayed longer than five years, and then maybe left after 10 or 15 years, why were they leaving? You're also asking why would a competent teacher leave the profession then? So why is teacher turnover, especially of the more seasoned teachers, a problem? And I guess sort of the other side of that coin is from the from a kind of amoral sense, isn't it more cost effective to have <laughs> mm-hmm. a younger pool of teachers? Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know. So go ahead, take that away. One thing that we know, and there are data to support this, is that we are currently in a teacher shortage. And this is felt more acutely in different areas of the country and in various subject areas. But we know, um, based on the work of Richard Ingersoll and also uh, the work of Linda Darling-Hammond's Learning Policy Institute, that we would not currently have a teacher shortage if we were retaining our teachers. Mm-hmm. So why do we care about experienced teachers leaving the profession? Because we have a teacher shortage is sort of an amoral answer, right? right. <laughs> um, I can give you another amoral answer uh, as to like, well, why wouldn't we just want to reduce labor costs? And mm-hmm. that's certainly, what, you know, and hire younger teachers, Um and more inexperienced teachers who are lower on the pay scale or the steps. Um, so that's certainly one approach, but that's one that sacrifices teacher effectiveness. So it actually undermines achievement. Um, it really disrupts student learning. High turnover is incredibly costly for schools um, in terms of rebuilding culture and expertise. So then what happens is when we have these schools that are having trouble retaining teachers that are in this constant state of tumult, then people don't want to teach there. So you end up having trouble even attracting new teachers to these schools that have high turnover because they are in constant states of chaos. Um, So that's the, I, I give you the amoral answer, right, to, to, to that. Right. Um, you know, I think the other piece is you do have to be looking at teaching in a very deprofessionalized way if you think about teachers as interchangeable cogs that you just put in front of a room. Right. No other profession do we think have the impression that the longer you're there, the more worthless you are, except teaching. And I think that that is tied directly to the ways in which teaching is a feminized profession. And the idea, and and that holds for men and women who occupy the position of teacher because it is a feminized profession overall. But that um, just as uh, women lose value over time, 
I think we're able to see that same kind of logic go into place, right? We never say, oh, let's put the new CEO in who has no experience. No, we want a person who has a bunch of experience and who's been a number of places and we value their age and their wisdom. So I think we really need to um, look at how that kind of misogyny plays in. Mm. Wow, that was that was deep. It's, uh, <laughs> Sorry, it's early in the morning. But I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, it's California guy. Yeah, no, that that was wow. What an answer. Um, no, and I, the amoral considerations that I'm thinking of some specifics here in California too. There's there's been um, districts not too far from where I teach where they have that high turnover rate of teachers, and they finally that district got together and and sued like the or the people who. Um, work there at the district or the students who attend there, they sue the district saying like, there's too much of a high turnover rate. Hmm. We've got to retain teachers. And so that we're seeing that coming back to us, like this is affecting our achievement. Mm -hmm. And then there's also other groups that mean really well. And I won't say who, but <laughs> they'll have like, Hey, for, for two years, if you work here, we'll kind of forgive your student loans. Yeah. And so that'll also create that turnover where they'll kind of go bide their time for two years and kind of, I mean, they will kind of burn them themselves out for those two years, but it'll give like 50% loan forgiveness yep. and then they'll move on to a situation that they would prefer rather than that yep. one. So all of these things kind of working together to create this, mm -hmm. this uh, turnover rate yep. that, that you're discussing. Yep. And, and, you know, at Bowdoin College where I teach, a lot of my students are attracted to those kinds of programs. And, um, mm. you know, one of the things I say to them is, okay, it's one thing if you're resume building, but if you're actually interested in teaching, I am concerned about you taking this route because I want you to stay in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this, this approach is one that's setting you up for failure and setting you up for burnout. Right. And then I like what you said, and we'll move on to the next question, but I, it reminds me of a previous guest I had who's, who speaks out against uh, a certain teacher archetype, mm. teacher as technician. Mm, mm -hmm. And that's how a lot of my training was coming in during No Child Left Behind is like, look, you're you're there because you're a technical piece, like you said, a cog in a wheel. And we, as long as we give you the right tools, then these students' achievement should be going up. And it just sort of depersonalized me and my role as a teacher and what I bring to it. So I'm only there to do strategies and, and get the kids achieving more. Mm -hmm. um, and so nothing was talked about with relationships with students. No. Though, like you said, I, I hear, I feel the trend kind of moving that way. People are saying that more nowadays. They're realizing that right. you can't just cut that part out. You have to keep that in. Right. And we can't mechanize social emotional learning, right? That, right. We can't just make that a new curriculum module. We need to shift what we're doing if we're really going to support students holistically in schools. I, I think the other thing around that technical piece is, and I'll say this just because you're um, studied philosophy, is that teacher's technician completely ignores the role of phrenesis or practical wisdom that teachers need to bring into the classroom. The ways in which they need to um, bring, yes, that toolkit that we hopefully are bringing with us and then assess a situation that we're in and then figure out how we might use those tools um, to reach students. So it's not that there is no set of tools that are helpful to have. There is a set of tools that could be helpful to have, but you also need to have that tact and judgment. And that's completely missing, um, you know, in, a, in an amoral technicist mm -hmm. version of teaching. Right. All right. So we're going to move on to the next question and okay. we drop the word burnout. 
and this is actually what initially drew me to your work, is that burnout was not enough of, or the the meaning of burnout is not enough to cover the experience of the teachers, teachers you're describing in your book, Demoralized. So let's go on with my wordy question here. I see a lot of teachers online claiming burnout as a problem and the need to medicate this problem through self-care. And I, I'm thinking of Parks and Rec, um, treat yourself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A lot of teachers are basically saying like, hey, take that mental health day or you know, take forget about work for a little bit, go home right after school's over, get involved in some hobbies to just kind of manage. And these are good pieces of advice. I mean, they've affected me in some very positive ways. But when I read your book, I discovered a category for thinking about teacher dissatisfaction I had never heard before. And I'm going to quote you a little bit here. So you say demoralization occurs when teachers cannot enact the values that motivate and sustain their work. Their dilemma is not what should be done, but that they feel as though they cannot do what should be done. So what are we missing when we call demoralization burnout? When we rely only on the category of burnout, we miss that some problems can't be resolved by self-care alone, right? And I am all for the taking the mental health day. You know, I have a regular meditation practice. Yoga is awesome. You know, if a principal wants to pay for massages for everybody, right on. But that approach can also be a slippery slope because it leads to the discourse that what the problem is when teachers are feeling distress is that they need to be more resilient. It argues, you know, that shows is that the teacher or the individual is the problem and needs a fix. In demoralization, it's the institutional and policy context that needs to be transformed. So it's whether... Burnout is a problem that requires an inside job, but demoralization is about a problem with the values of the individual interacting with the context in which they're working. The other piece of this, and again, this goes back to my idea Mm -hmm. of when do we, what do we think of experienced teachers? If you think about, take the burnout metaphor seriously, and in the book, I talk about it in terms of thinking about a candle. And so if you burn it out, if you know, you're like, Oh, look, I have a 20 hour candle and whoops, I just let it go all night long. So now there's, oh, you know, my candles worn out. If you take the burnout metaphor seriously, there's no coming back from it. There's no more wick or wax. There's no anything to light anymore. You're toast. But many teachers, if given different conditions, have plenty to offer. So this is an idea of not that the teacher's worth is extinguished, but the teacher's ability to do good in this context is seriously undermined. So that's going on in demoralization. Right. Yeah. So where I see this happening is we're looking at a teacher who's looking depleted. They're looking at their energy levels and they maybe they're starting to say things like, I'm feeling burnt out or... Just they look like their energy levels have really gone down, Um, like they just don't have enough to make it anymore. And we're just looking at them and saying they look burnt out and we Mm -hmm. recommend a bunch Mm -hmm. of self-care. That's not enough to cover it based on what you're describing. That it's like, well, we need to really investigate what is it that's causing you to your tank to be empty, so to speak. And I could see that if I was I'll just use me as an example, like hypothetically, if one day I go on to become an administrator and I look at a teacher and I don't have this category of, oh, they look demoralized or that, that maybe this could be demoralization. I'm just looking at it as burnout. I could really miss a lot of cues and and see like I'd be recommending the wrong kind of medicine for the situation and just saying like, it's your here. 
here's how you can handle it. Let me give you some time and space. But really, no, there's some policies here that are keeping me from flourishing. Is that accurate? That's absolutely correct. And I think the trouble also is that in recommending self-care in situations of demoralization, you can actually make a teacher feel more demoralized. Mm. So the, the medicine can actually cause more harm, right? So when you're, I'm thinking of a situation where, you know, I'm feeling demoralized because I'm teaching the lowest track of students in my school because I work in a tracked school and I watch them being consistently disciplined in ways that the upper track students never are for the same kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Telling me to have more self-care in that situation is telling me actually to give up on the things I care about and that like, just stop getting worked Mm -hmm. up about that, where that's just damaging. So, you know, the outward symptoms of demoralization and burnout are incredibly similar, right? I don't think you can, I don't think you can tell the difference without asking some questions. And I think that people use burnout because that's the term we have. That's the most common, you know, word ready to hand. And so the only way to get to the root of it is to ask what's going on. And that means taking some time and listening. And it's about digging a little bit deeper. So I'd want to hear what makes this work good for you and in what way is that work, that goodness about the work being challenged right now by what's happening? If I hear that, then I'm, I'm guessing that demoralization might be happening. So another example is that I was talking to a teacher who told me, I can't be creative anymore. And I thought, oh, okay, she's not talking about demoralization. You know, well, okay, you know, that this isn't a, a situation in which this fits. But when I said to her, tell me more about what you mean about being creative. Because in my mind, I'm thinking, well, she wants to be able to use glitter whenever she wants, bust out the glue gun. <laughs> and really what she was talking about as I said, tell me what that looks like when you're being creative. And that's such an important lesson I learned that I hope maybe school leaders might take. And when you are one, I hope you do become one, not because I want you to leave the classroom, but because we need well-attuned school leaders in in the world. Uh, uh, You know, one of the things that I I think is a really valuable uh, way to pose a question is, tell me what it looks like when you are doing this. Tell me what it looks like when you're engaging in good teaching. Mm. Tell me what it looks like when you're being creative. And so this woman was not talking about glitter and glue guns. What she was talking about was being able to be responsive to the emergent interests of her students in order to engage them in the curriculum. Gee, that sounds like amazing teaching to me, right. you know, that, that what everything we know about uh, learning science tells us that starting with a nascent interest is a way to build uh, into new understandings. So we have to dig deeper. We have to take the time to listen. And one of the problems is that Um, In this amoral system that we are in, what has been valued most from teachers, I think, in the last 15 years is compliance. Mm -hmm. And so school leaders are ready to hear noncompliance and insubordination and ready to hear just resistance that's a form of recalcitrance. And instead, 
I hope school leaders might start digging into that resistance a little bit more. Sometimes, let's be clear, there is just resistance. I don't feel like doing that. We've had five different ideas around this in the last two years. I'm not doing that. There are versions of unwillingness to change. Right. But often there is something much deeper that is about the well-being of students and the integrity of teaching that's behind teachers' concerns that we need to be listening for and and requires some probing to get there. All right. Well, you anticipated my next question and, and really answered a lot of it, but I was going to bring it down to, let's say... It's just me as a teacher in the building that I teach in. And I'm noticing another teacher who's kind of depleted of the energy. And I like how you said like the good, like what's the good that you want to do when you're being creative, what is going on there and kind of digging into that. So maybe it's not an administrator noticing it, but it's just me as a colleague. And I'm starting to figure out like, oh, they're kind of experiencing these. uh, They're not able to realize or actualize or access their moral center as a teacher. What's what, what's something like practical that I could do as a colleague to encourage or just acknowledge what's what's going on? Because I think some I know for me when I finally figured out an aspect of my teaching that I was demoralizing me, just even naming it for me was such a relief to know that there was a name for it because I kept trying to tack on like burnout or other things. But once it, once I had a category in mind where I was like, oh, this is what I'm experiencing. I felt empowered just by that. Even if it wasn't going to change my situation, I now had a way to think through my situation. Mm-hmm. So is there any recommendations you would have for, for somebody like me to have that conversation mm-hmm. or? Well, for, yeah, no, I don't that, know if I'm, yeah. I don't even know what well, I'm at. And so first I always, this is the kind of weird answer or response I have to give to people often, which is I'm sorry. And thank you. So <laughs> I'm so, to you okay. in terms of what this work did for you. I'm really thrilled that the concept of demoralization, the term demoralization was helpful for you in reframing what was going on and shifting how you felt about yourself and your work. And then the I'm sorry is I'm sorry you were feeling that way in the first place, right? I, right. I wish I weren't writing about demoralization, right? Um, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm not thrilled that this is, I'm a teacher educator. I don't, I don't want this to be happening in the world. But I think perhaps offering some language around demoralization is helpful sometimes because when you think you're burnt out, the problem is you and it makes you feel worse. Mm. And if um, if you can start thinking about demoralization, then you also get to reaffirm what you care about as a teacher, as you said, the moral center, which I talk about, everyone's moral center may be different in terms of what's the good that's really motivating them in this work. But when you can say, oh, right, that is what brought me to teaching. Now, the, the, the sort of the gates aren't going to open and, you know, the bluebirds aren't going to bring down a banner that say, okay, everything's resolved at mm-hmm. that moment. But then you get to say, okay, now what's, I really like that you said that you were empowered because then you get to say, okay, what can I change if possible, that's going on with this problem that's preventing me from realizing what's good about my work. And one of the things that I think is most important is working with other teachers on that. Um, Not going out and saying, okay, I'm on a crusade now. No, it's working together and finding other people who share the same good that they're bringing to teaching to see if can you work together to shift something 
there, even something small. Um, so one mm. thing as a colleague you can do, in addition to giving the language, offering some potentially some language of demoralization, is if you identify with the good that they're talking about, oh yeah, that's so important to me too, mm. then first of all, recognizing that moral motivation is really important. Or if maybe you're not the person, right? You are a nice colleague, but that's not the thing that gets you going, but you know someone else right. who okay. has that same motivation, connect them. So you really not need to talk to pers- the person down in room 209. They're really fired up about that too and really care about that. Or I saw this online community um, the other day and you might be really interested in that. Connecting them to other people who share that moral motivation about what makes their work good is huge. And then if you yourself have found any ways around around the thing that's the barrier, offer your ideas about that, you know. So if say that this is a problem with discipline in your lower track class, you can say, you know what? I found out if I talk to this dean, things go much better. Mm, okay. You know, just those are some. That's an incredibly practical version of this, right? But mm-hmm. but just even offering something about have you found a workaround? Right. Okay. Start there. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> no, that's that's perfect. Um, so I'm going to move right along here. And oh man, I res- so many. Th- I wanted to comment on something you just said, and uh, but for the sake of time, we'll move on. So one chapter that really read, and we're we're getting there right now with what you're saying too, is uh, leads to the next question. And I'm going to be very long winded here, but one chapter that really resonated with me was about school leaders, um, their share of the the demoralization. You discuss the disconnect that can exist between driven administrators and then apparently resistant teachers. And I have a quote here from the book oh, yeah. I'd like to read. <laughs> <laughs> here we go. You get to hear yourself. The moral landscape of education has been winnowed by the important but limited language of achievement that eviscerates full moral discourse about teaching. In a morally constrained pedagogical policy environment, teachers' criticisms regarding pedagogical policy are cast in binary terms, either for or against the proposed initiative. And so here's where I'm going to get a little windy here, but um, I'll give you an example, like a concrete oh. example from my profession, okay. oh, that's helpful. my time in the classroom. So in this binary, like administrator may be unknowingly encroaching on a teacher's moral space with their initiatives. And when a teacher pushes back to the administrators, this appears like teaching this teacher is acting immorally themselves by resisting. And so here's my story. So an example of this is years ago, I was on a faculty where we were told that we had to write a standard and an objective on the board. And I know teachers listening to this are like, they're probably rolling their eyes right now. (laughs) But the standard, it was, I was even told that it's not enough to reference, just put the reference number of the standard. You need to write out the entire standard on the board. And so what I, and I did at first, dutifully, I complied. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then I was realizing, you know, I'm spending about 20 minutes because I teach two different courses. Mm-hmm. So I'm spending 20 to 30 minutes writing this out. And then I'm also just thinking about how to craft an objective. And after a couple of years, I said, enough. This is cutting into my time that I could be preparing for the lesson for the day. And they're going to get the standard aligned teaching. They're, I'm going to hit this objective do I really need to spend all this time writing it? Right. And and I think even in the back of my mind for crying out loud, could you just print a poster that I could put up so that I don't have to write out the standard? Each time? 
which would be a totally appropriate hack to that, right? Like that would be the right response. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, And I didn't think of that. Like if I was ever administrator in that situation, I'd say like, here's, Mm -hmm. we've been asked to do this. I'm going to help as best, as much as I can by providing this resource. Mm -hmm. Um, But no, it's like, you just need to do this. So, um, but if I just stop doing it, then the administrator say, Hey, you're not going to put that on the board. And I say, yeah, I'm, I'm done doing that. <laughs> I'm not going to do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Or the thing, because mm-hmm. we have the same goals here, but this doesn't fit. And I also have life outside of the classroom that I need to worry about and giving up two and a half hours a week so that I could write this stuff on the board. is just not worth the time and energy. How would I, how would we kind of cut through and break that stalemate? Like we're that, that it sounds like a squaring off at that point. Like there's an administrator saying you need to do this and a teacher folding his arms and saying, nope. <laughs> so uh, how do we fix that? <laughs> well, I mean, so I want to be clear that some of this is going to come down to communication style and personality, right? You know, where you may not be able to break the stalemate in a particular situation with a particular kind of person. But mm-hmm. um, if you are able to, you can I really work with my students on reason giving and saying, and and so maybe saying like, it's not at the moment where the uh, school leader walks in your room and you're ready to throw the eraser at them. Right. And, um, and says this to you, but you say, can I, can we have a meeting? And you say, I want to let you know where I'm coming from with this. I'm sure there are also teachers who are rolling their eyes right now saying that's so not going to happen in my school. So I just want to acknowledge like, But there are places you could do that, but it might not be at the moment that Mm -hmm. you're in that um, situation. Um, I I feel like it's a really unfair question. I'm asking you to fix it. Yeah, well, and I I think um, another situation might be to think, to say, I'm not unwilling to indicate the standard, but I am unwilling to use the time I could be greeting students at the door, you know, to, to offer what you want to be doing that aligns with the vision of good teaching you have instead, right? Okay. I want to be able to gr- be able to greet students at the door and let them know I'm we're all ready for the day. Um, I think helping the administrators see that what your problem is is not with just doing something you don't want to do, but there is an active good you want to be engaging in that you can't do because of this administrivia. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to say, how can we solve this problem together? Or, you know, is that a thing where you have me doing some ridiculous thing in my professional learning community work during our PD time? Could a group of teachers sit together and try to figure out a solution to being able to reference the standard in our classes or something like that? Um, clearly, an administrator who says that has never read the standards and seen how long they can be sometimes, right? It's not a matter of just writing one quick sentence on the board. Right. Especially in the older, like the grade levels as you move up, um, it, the higher yeah. Grade levels. Yeah. Was that a terribly unsatisfying answer? I don't know if it was. No, I thought that was really practical. I like the the tip about, so here's where your, here's how, what my practice aligns with your goals. Yes. And it doesn't include necessarily yes. doing this. Um, I think that's a real helpful tip. Uh, though it would take a rather courageous teacher to be able to to say that. Mm-hmm. And I'm at that point in my career. I do have 15 mm-hmm. years behind me. Mm-hmm. I can do that. It also helps that I'm male. <laughs> so, yep, yep, um, yep. Yep. Uh, no, but that, that may not be for everybody, but um, I, I, I could also see myself advocating for on behalf. Like if there's a group of us mm-hmm. having the same 
issue. And it's like, well, then you're, hey, you're the more senior member or you have better relationships with mm-hmm. the people who are here. You've been here around longer. Maybe you could advocate for us. So I could see that being a potential route too. Exactly. I, I love that idea. I mean, especially using that as a way to leverage your privilege in all the ways you just mentioned that you are privileged. Um, and I, right. and I think, you know, one of the things too, you know, teachers are the profile of teachers and it becomes more so the earlier grades and less so in the other grades is one of rule follower and people pleaser. And, you know, a lot of us still have quite a bit of protection in our jobs. I want to recognize places where teachers have no protection in their jobs, right? I'm not talking to you. Um, I want to also recognize people who their positions are precarious in a number of ways. I'm not talking to you. But for those of us who can be secure in our jobs, let's use our voices. Yeah, I think I saw an image on, it was like a GIF that somebody posted where it was a probably like a military training exercise, but like the, the first guys that get to the wall that they have to climb over, they, they hoist mm. up, you know, somebody on top of the wall and then the guys on top of the wall pull the, the people mm. who are at the bottom that were hoisting everyone else up over the wall. And so I could see playing a role of like, okay, I got up here before people did. And so now I can reach back and help, mm-hmm. hold, you know, help mm-hmm. them ascend too. So yeah, that's, I, I certainly see a role for that. I also think that that's a role for retired teachers as well Mm -hmm. to really be Mm -hmm. advocates for the profession because they have nothing, they have nothing to lose. Yeah. Uh, That's a good point. And and they have nothing to lose and a lot of wonderful experience. Right. Yes. And they, and they've seen, they've lived it. They've, they've lived through Mm -hmm. the the things that Mm -hmm. have demoralized other teachers. So um, good point. So uh, let's let's do something a little bit more. We've been talking demoralized the whole time. So let's uh, do a thought <laughs> experiment here, if we could. So um, let's make it positive at the end. <laughs> let's imagine an American education system where every stakeholder had a deep understanding of demoralization. Actually, rather, let's do it in a more positive way. That we all understood that every teacher, every educator had a moral center that he or she is working to realize. What would the relationships from teacher to teacher and school leadership to teacher look like in an environment where we all realized that everyone was coming from a moral center? This is so dreamy. Um, I love the question and what it asked me to imagine. And it, it gives us a way of imagining a place that's so much more humane and respectful than the one we currently occupy. I think what we would be doing is we'd be curious about our colleagues and our administrators' moral motivations. We'd want to know, and we'd be talking about it. Mm. You know, many administrators, and I just spoke with a group of school leaders from the Chicago area, and they said, so when, you know, where's the demoralized for administrators book? Mm. And school leaders often have fewer protections than teachers do. Right. And so to really think about sharing what motivates us to help to help us navigate the discomfort that's going to come from disagreeing about some of the methods. And I talked about this earlier, but I think in this dreamland, we would take a good hard look at this amoral achievement only phase of education that we are in and get very serious about looking when 
when means and ends of education, the methods by which we do things and that the ends we're hoping to produce, we would look at when those are divorced from each other and really try to get serious about fixing that, fixing that disconnect. We need to better align what we hope our young people will grow into. We need to better align what we're doing in schools with our hopes and dreams for our children. Amen. (laughs) That sounds really good. And I have noticed, uh, just even me, teacher to students, when I get more interested in and curious about what's motivating them, it, well, without trying to digress too much, for me, I cast stories and narratives about Mm -hmm. like the behavior I'm seeing. We all do this. And so like my students, it tended to have, I had three narratives in in my early teaching career. Students not doing any work, lazy. Um, The student's getting a B, they're good. You know, things like that, Mm -hmm. or, you know, they're Mm -hmm. misbehaving because, but I as I've really taken a different uh, approach in the in recent years, I've learned that the stories that my students have, I was missing it. I was telling myself stories that weren't true about my students. And as I've gotten more and more curious about where, who they are individually and what they're dealing with, struggling with, what they care about, makes a whole lot more sense out of what I'm seeing day to day in the classroom. And it gives me a way to work with them that doesn't demoralize them or mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, stress them mm-hmm. out or cause them anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, on top of what they're already doing. And it would be so wonderful if we all were that way towards each other and just not falling victim to these narratives we're casting about one another and just listen to listen to each other and be curious about motivations and, and moral centers and, and things like that. So uh, that's where I've, I've gotten to as a teacher. And I could see the value in what you're saying now, if it was like at all levels, looking, me as a teacher, looking up at my administrators, mm-hmm, administrators looking mm-hmm, down, mm-hmm. And Maybe that up-down language isn't so good, yeah. but just looking at each other is... Yeah, that's lovely. Um, mm-hmm. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Um, yeah, this is <laughs> very hopeful. I feel hopeful. That's great, this. especially uh, after a book is and- titled Demoralized. You're not sure if you're going to feel hopeful at the end. <laughs> Well, yeah, the final chapters really do get to, it's how yes, they can stay, yes. right? So that was yes. like the end of the subtitle. So. It, it is a hopeful book, but it is really empowering to get that language. And I really think that not only, I think every teacher should read this book, but I also think every administrator should. And then we can start to move towards that landscape that we're talking about, where we're all just really curious about one another's motivations. Mm, thank you. So I'll, I'll transition here to the end. We, I found you online. I think I've, somebody was referenced your work and that's how I initially heard about it and um, got really curious. But if people wanted to learn more about your work and what you're up to, where should they go to find you? Um, it's easy to find me online, Doris A. Santoro. Um, on my Bowdoin website, you can find a full list of my publications. If you want anything you can't access, just let me know and I'll send it to you. Um, I have a personal website that I sometimes check. That's how you accessed me um, through a a form there. I've also co-edited another book uh, entitled Principled Resistance, How Teachers Resolve Ethical Dilemmas. So there's a lot of examples of how teachers have tried to live their moral centers. Mm. Um, And there are um, both historical pieces that document that this resistance is not just uh, something that's happened since 2016. It's been, you know, hashtag resistance has been going on for a while. Um, Also, there are examples from current teachers who talk about how they navigated resistance. 
Mm. I'm currently working on a book project about the moral concerns of uh, Indigenous, Black, and people of color who are teachers. Mm. And so if anyone's listening, you can contact me. I would love to talk to you and see if you might be interested. And one way to contact me or to see what I'm thinking about is to follow me on Twitter at Doris A. Santoro. Okay, I'm looking forward to the, I have yet to read Principled Resistance. So now I have that on my uh, list of things to read and then your book project. This this all sounds really incredible. So (laughs) thank you. um, Yeah, thanks again for coming on um, and sharing your perspective. It's needed. I don't don't have anything else to say other than that. Thanks for for taking out some time. Uh, Thank you so much. And I love talking to teachers. So thank you for allowing me to be part of this important podcast. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Dear Teacher, Don't Give Up. Here are several takeaways from my conversation with Doris. If you or someone you know feel depleted of energy, don't rush to declare it burnout. Stop and do some investigating. Do I need to work less and spend time doing things I love more? If that's the answer, then you're probably facing some burnout, and it's good to adjust your schedule a little bit. The other question is, or have I been cut off from what I find rewarding about teaching? And if that's the situation, then it might be your circumstances, and we may be looking at demoralization. So strike up conversations more with educators about the moral motivations that brought us all into the teaching profession and what keeps us coming back week after week. And as we start to work towards learning more about our moral motivations among one another, it could really help us figure out and pinpoint what's frustrating us at our present moment. Essentially, we educators need to listen to one another better and really dig into what it is that keeps us in the job. If today's episode caused you to think of a teacher you know, and if you think it may be a help to that person, join me in getting us all connected so that, as fellow educators, we can all help one another move from surviving to thriving. And if you are currently working in education and have ever thought about leaving the classroom, or right now, you're a classroom teacher looking for the nearest exit. I want to hear your story. Please email me at makethemmasterit at gmail.com or find me on Voxer and tell me your story. Finally, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share Dear Teacher Don't Give Up today, wherever you listen to podcasts or on the social media of your choice. I'm your host, Jeffrey E. Frieden. Thanks for listening.